Hi, everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Brohl. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coasts, and inland seas at CoastalNewsToday.com. If you like North Coast Chronicles, please, please, please share it with your friends and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please also rate us. We love to hear what you're thinking. With us, as always, is our trusty engineer and my talented co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hey, Tyler, we have a very special guest with us today. This person is an expert in coastal resilience, but she is a Great Lakes gal herself, being from the great state of Ohio. And our guest is also the musician who played the violin on the sea shanty that opens our show. What do you know? That is just so cool. You know, I <laughs> I have listened to this shanty, Helen, a lot. <laughs> it's part of <laughs> yes, my it's, you know part of my duties, uh, and yes. it is just wonderfully played. It is it wonderfully, is wonderfully played. played. Yes, it is. So we have with us none other than the talented Catherine Flynn Chambers. And Catherine is joining us today as the research physical scientist with the Coastal and Hydraulics Laboratory with the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Catherine truly is a go-to person to understand analytical approaches to coastal resilience and the marine transportation system. During her career with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, she has focused on studying the concept of resilience related to navigation, emergency response, and asset management. Now, I had the pleasure of working with Catherine when she co-led a federal interagency team on resilience, um, but she is also active in several international working groups on marine and inland transportation systems. She has her Bachelor of Science from Wittenberg University in Ohio and MS from Purdue University's Ecological Science and Engineer Program. Catherine Flynn Chambers, thank you so much for joining North Coast Chronicles. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I... Uh, Tyler, I have to admit that I've known Catherine a long time. I first met Catherine, golly, I don't know how many years ago it was now, Catherine, when you were a, uh, a new uh, Noah Knaus fellow, and we interviewed you for the CMTS. The Army Corps stole you away, but they've also given you a great career. And um, let me also note that Miss Chamber is an amazing artist, and I have the great good fortune of owning one of her paintings which he generously painted for me as a retirement gift. So Catherine has spent many a holiday around the islands in Lake Erie, where I'm from, and painted a boat that is known around those waters. And it is wonderful and fabulous. So we're so glad you're here with us today, Catherine. Well, thank you, Helen. I wasn't sure if I should apologize for the fiddle tune or, <laughs> or <laughs> thanks, but I appreciate it regardless. No, I think it's wonderful. We love it. We think it, uh, um, it it just fits the program so well and makes us even that much more special. So thank you for that. Now, Tyler, last month we spoke with Andrea Densham, a sustainability expert working with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. It was shocking to learn that about 22 million pounds of plastic get into the Great Lakes each year. And that a study by the University of Toronto found that 90% of Great Lakes water samples over the last 10 years have unsafe microplastic levels. And Tyler, I, I found, um, I, I, I was not surprised, but surprised um, by what we learned. What was your take? I was surprised. 
I was surprised. I guess I had, you know, when I think about Great Lakes uh, pollution, I kind of go back to like a, a different era, I guess. I guess I think of like coal and, you know, the, the freighter stuff. But um, what I didn't think about was all of the plastic runoff that occurs into these lakes into these drainages and it i mean it does make sense i mean that's the thing when you think about it it does make sense it's hap- it seems to be happening in every other water body around the planet yeah sadly um true one thing that was noted um i just didn't think about was how sewage treatment facilities are investigated for the content of microfiber plastics um microplastic fibers not sure how to say that like from our synthetic clothes that gets loose every time we wash our clothes and then gets into our watersheds and that's particularly a problem in the great lakes i i it's just not something i made that connection on um so it's cool that the alliance for the great lakes is looking at this issue from a number of different perspectives like from basic beach cleanup to addressing the source of plastic pollution. And in particular, they're addressing manufacturing sources as well. So, um, you know, kudos to the work they're doing. And Andrea is definitely an expert in that area. Um, One study that I noted from doing research for the podcast was that a study of microplastics on 37 national park beaches around the country, that microfibers were found at every site and made up 97% of the microplastic debris. But the highest concentration of microplastics in this national study was found at the Apostle Islands National National Seashore in Wisconsin. And it broke my heart. Um, It breaks my heart that it's anywhere. But the point is, it's really an issue. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you live. It's all part of something we have to think about. And that's kind of new. I mean, I I certainly I've been tracking the plastic problem. You know, I was pro straw ban back in the day, but it's this is a much more pernicious, deep seated problem. And then, what's cool again about the Great Lakes, Helen, is that it's like a mini. It's kind of a mini model for the world. I mean, like all of the oceans are having this problem. So if you want to solve it, you have to kind of look at the whole, all of the land around the water, you know, <laughs> and all of the different ways that the plastics are getting in. And uh, I think that's what we saw in the last episode. Yeah. And it just reminds us that natural fibers that we wear you know, wool and cottons and things, especially in the wintertime, uh, in our hoodies, you know, we got to go to natural fibers um, in order to kind of get this right at this, uh, you know, at our own sources. So yeah, I learned a lot from that. And um, I you know, recommended that folks go to the Alliance for the Great Lakes to kind of look up this work as well. The term resilience is used in so many ways related to climate change and growing impacts to our coastlines. Resilience is about fending off those impacts and measuring resilience is a critical issue as we spend untold fortunes of dollars on preventing degradation, attempting to preserve coastal communities and industries. Catherine Chambers, thank you again for joining us. You have been involved in coastal resilience analytics for some time with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Could you share a bit about the Army Corps mission in this area? Yeah, I mean, the Corps, um, of course, I speak specifically as a research scientist uh, who helps the Corps figure out um, 
how to apply resilience concepts to improving our mission areas. Um, so just <laughs> putting that caveat out there, but the core works in resilience related ways in almost all of its missions. I mean, they do um, navigation. So like worrying about how to prepare, respond, recover and adapt to storms um, and navigation channels, uh, thinking about flood risk reduction for populations uh, on our coasts and in our inland rivers and at the, on the Great Lakes. Um, there's environmental restoration that we do. So thinking about how to improve the resilience of ecological communities, um, sensitive species, things like that. Uh, there's also, you know, hydropower. So figuring out how to best predict the ability of our hydropower facilities to provide the function that we need. So, I mean, no matter which way you turn it, almost every one of the core's missions relates to resilience in some way. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, I people have to remember the core has a lot of assets in physical assets in the water, right? So, um, you know, they, as much as many of our federal agencies, Navy being a big one, right? Um, uh, Coast Guard, all these folks that are working um, in our coast, you know, our inland systems, coastal systems, Great Lakes, I have to think about this stuff. But just broadly speaking, what makes a coastline or a business or a community or an agency resilient and why measure it? That's a really great question. Um, and it's hard to get to specifics without having <laughs> like a specific example, but I will say that resilience in general, um, there's been a lot of conversation about how to define resilience. Um, and it comes from a, well, well, this conversation and how it gets drug out comes from resilience origins in a lot of different um I guess, academic backgrounds. So you have ecological resilience, which is um, a way that a system is able to absorb an event uh, or a stressor or a disturbance and change or adapt, uh, you know, afterwards. Or there's something like engineering resilience, which is how are we going to bounce back to exactly how we were before or even better? Um, and in the end, all of these concepts of resilience kind of boil down to this four concept uh, cycle, we like to call it, where you're preparing for an event or anticipating something to happen in the future, either a major disruption like a hurricane or an earthquake or some sort of cyber threat um, or a stressor like climate change or increased pollution, something that you know is, is going to happen to you in the future. So you're anticipating it. Then once it happens, it's, it's your system's ability to withstand or absorb that event or stressor. And then how it responds or recovers afterwards. And then finally, there's a step about adaptation which is how the system's able to improve or even go um, be better prepared the next time an event comes to have less uh, impact and a faster recovery. So those, those sort of concepts are applicable to an agency, um, you know, 
an ecological area, really all kinds of systems. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. Uh, it, you, you, what you just said reminded me um, of conversations I had when I was still working in federal government about how to incorporate resilience into grants and funding. Um, and so f- whatever the funding might be for, um, as if it's if it's in and asking the the grantee to be able to talk about how if they receive these funds, they will be more resilient. But how do you assess whether they are more resilient and say, you know, they say we'll be applications often say it'll make us more resilient. But what's that mean? And how do you measure it? And how do you report back that? Yes, we are. We are more resilient by this amount. So it's so clearly what you're saying is that resilience is not just about surviving increased storms, that there's, it's, it's much more to it. It's the before, the during, the after, and the after-after kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that summarizes it pretty well, I would say. Um, it, now, the marine transportation system piece of this, um, is it more complex than any other coastal industry or community? Ooh, comparatively, I'm not sure. Um, but I would say that, uh, well, recently we published a guide for doing resilience assessments for the marine transportation system. And a huge part of that effort was scoping um, because the MTS, the marine transportation system, is, is complicated. Um, there's a whole variety of users, stakeholders, organizational groups, um, that have a stake in what happens across the marine transportation system. Um, there's a lot of governing bodies. The geographical scope of the MTS is pretty broad. Are we talking, you know, just a port? Are we talking an entire inland system? Are we talking networks of ports? Um, and it turns out it was sort of all of the above. Um, and then once you decide your geographic scope and who should be involved, you have to figure out what kind of systems within the MTS you need to worry about. Um, and for this guide, we decided um, first what we cared about was the ability to move goods and people. That was the simplest definition of the function of the marine transportation system. And working backwards from there, we then defined all of the systems and interdependencies uh, that could impact the ability uh, to provide that function. So, yeah, we just <laughs> the MTS is very complicated, um, and we had we had quite the challenge with scoping what a resilience assessment should include when tackling problems. Yeah, the Great Lakes is clearly an inland waterborne transport system, um, and if you talk about the first one, the ability to move people and cargo, then it applies just like any coastal area. But the factors that might impact resilience in the Great Lakes aren't necessarily the same as other systems is kind of what I'm hearing. Or I guess one, one system is not necessarily the same and to another system. Yeah, I think it really depends on what it is that you care about being resilient within the Great Lakes or any other system for that matter. Is it your ability to, I don't know, provide safe drinking water? Or is it your ability to move goods and people or your ability to preserve tourism? Um, that, that decision on 
what needs to be resilient really helps you figure out, you know, how to collect, connect the dots on uh, the systems within your system of interest that you need to include. Yeah, thank you. So just, we all know that the Great Lakes doesn't have hurricanes per se, right? But there are notable storm events. There's high and low water events. There's coastal erosion, conflicting uses of the waterways. So um, I'm sure many of the principles of resilience apply to the Great Lakes. Um, You are active with an international organization called the World Association for Waterborne Transport Infrastructure. Now, I'll necessarily confuse our listeners by saying it is commonly referred to under the acronym for a name that it used to used used to be used called PIANC, P-I-A-N-C. So I mention that because we're likely going to refer to PIANC rather than the Waterborne Transport Infrastructure Association. But in any case, putting that aside, PIANC is a forum where professionals around the world join their expertise on cost-effective, reliable, and sustainable infrastructures to facilitate the growth of waterborne transport. Now, clearly, the ability to do that has changed over the last 100-plus years of this organization, um, particularly because of climate change or uh, man-made factors. Now, within PIANC, there are standing committees, or commissions they're called, in which you are actively engaged. I think one is the Environmental Committee or Commission, as it is known, and another, I'm presuming, is the Permanent Task Group on Climate Change. Now, specifically, um, the Environmental Commission published a report in 2020 called Resilience of the Maritime and Inland Waterborne Transport System. Catherine, how were you involved in this report? Well, I was lucky enough to be a young fellow when this this group kicked off. So I uh, supported uh, a scientist named Julie Rosati. She was the chair of this group. Um, and, you know, it, it, these reports take a long time to generate. There were, I don't know, maybe 11 people involved a, a, across the world. Um, and we had to sit down. All right, so we were we were tasked with uh, a request to define resilience for the international marine transportation system and pull forward just like a comprehensive uh, guide to understanding that. So there are a lot of people across the world who were involved in this group. Um, and over the years, I ended up chairing it uh, as Julie moved on to take take another position. So I helped to kind of shepherd this report uh, and put it together and kind of share it once we published it in 2019. One of the things I really love about this report, and I want folks to kind of look it up, is that you did case studies. And because it's international, the case studies are from all around the world. And what it emphasized to me is that the factors that impact resilience are very diverse. And the interests of each areas um, uh, can be very diverse, although um, anybody could look at all any of these case studies and pull something out of it that applies to their system in particular. Um, so I really liked that about it. But can you can you expand just a, a wee bit on on the factors that impact resilience? You kind of touched on this earlier that they are not all environmental in nature. In other words, it's not resilience isn't just about um, dealing with the impacts of increased storm action or droughts or rains, right? Not at all. No, resilience can go far beyond, uh, yeah, environmental stressors, although those get talked about a lot because 
an environmental stressor like climate change or an episodic event like a tsunami, for example, impacts every bit of the system all at once. But there's also a whole variety of disturbances or stressors that can impact parts of the marine transportation system. For example, you know, if we're talking about an ecological part of the marine and inland waterborne transportation system, like say uh, a port is located in a bay that has a very important um, protected species or some coastal habitat, then a stressor and disturbance for that might be something like invasive or nuisance species or pollution and conflicting human use. For example, a harbor that's getting far too busy uh, with recreational activities and boating activities, fishing, uh, and also needing to move a lot of goods and people in and out. That can be a a huge disruption uh, to the MTS. So figuring out how to balance all of those needs as well. There's also things like uh, power disruptions. For example, after Hurricane Maria uh, in Puerto Rico, the loss of power um, and the loss of access to roadways was a huge impact on the resilience of the MTS. It didn't matter if the port of San Juan was open if electricity wasn't restored and roadways weren't there. Um, There's also things like, you know, terrorism, criminal activity, political instability, uh, accidents, industrial accidents. There's all sorts of um, disruptions that need to be considered when we're talking about resilience. So, is um, resilience the same thing as just building back better? I think it can be, that can be a way to summarize an outcome of increased resilience, certainly. Um, But why resilience then instead of just adapting um, or increasing our strength in the future? And it's, Resilience is a little bit, in my opinion, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's a process of understanding our capacity to absorb disruption uh, and then all of the options that we have for building back better in the future. So, yeah, I guess that could be a nice, a nice way to quickly summarize it. But really, the process of understanding failure uh, is is critical to to resilience as well. Yeah, thanks. And I guess uh, the question also goes to a little bit of how you prioritize what you know where you build back better. So, mm-hmm. how do you balance um, the need to address those you know the low probability, high impact events, right, such as a, a tsunami, industrial accident, or you know other big things. Um, and the cost of those that may not be may not happen very often, versus your your investment in trying to address the day to day stuff, because you like you said people know the big stuff right that's the stuff that gets their attention and the big hurricane but day to day there's coastal erosion and drought and floods and things that happen perhaps even more regularly than they used to. How do you balance that? Is that um, yeah. How do you balance that or know where to start? Gosh, I mean, that is a huge, a huge and very excellent question, Helen. Um, there's like a whole science to choosing 
like adaptive capacity or, or how to how to plan for your adaptive capacity. And out of a list of potential mitigation or adaptation alternatives, which one to choose first? Um, there's a whole science behind that. Uh, if I had to summarize quickly, though, I guess I would say it depends a lot on what the stakeholders involved in your system care about the most. Um, who is the one doing the investing in this system? Um, what do impacted communities have to say about it? And where can we create the most impact um, based on, you know, the amount of money that we have to invest? So, yeah, I think I think that that answer has to be derived from the people that are involved in the study. <laughs> no, thank you. That's a really great point. A, a, a common sense response is that you know what do your constituents need, right? Whether it's your local community or the people who work um, at the port or, you know, um, what the region needs. So that's a great point. But then that leads me to going back to what you had talked about, um, because concurrent to your leading the peeing study, you performed a number of resilience assessments for the U.S. Committee on the Marine Transportation System that I work for. And by analyzing the impact of the marine transportation system from hurricane events in the U.S. specifically, starting with 2017 and then updates through, was it 2020, 2021? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 2020. Um, and um, those were really great reports. I, I want to refer folks to that um, by going to the National Transportation Library. You can get those reports online. Um, um, in in short, um, golly, and I know there were lots of ways that you measured this or kind of looked that that assessment. In short, did you find that the marine transportation system, at least in those areas that were impacted, were becoming more resilient? That's a loaded question. And I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I would say by leaps and bounds. And the reason I say that is because really what we were trying to understand with that report is the resilience of the response effort and the collaboration between different federal agencies who are involved in response and recovery and how they learned from each storm and adapted some of their best practices uh, to be to facilitate better recovery in the future uh, and how a lot of those lessons learned were passed on to the next year uh, and used to improve future responses to storms. So it wasn't necessarily um, a study where we tried to see if rebuilding was happening, if building back better was happening in a physical sense for the infrastructure uh, on our coasts, but it was more how are our agencies uh, learning from all of these events and adapting their missions? So, for example, um, you know, NOAA and the Army Corps are both in charge of surveying uh, coasts or channels after a storm. So, how um, how to best facilitate this? These quick surveys after a storm comes through. Um, how to quickly get aids to navigation back in the channels so that ports or ships, I should say, are able to safely navigate 
Um, and then, you know, how to communicate to the public that the port is open uh, for business after after a big major disruption. So that was that would be the type of action um, that we learned about. We learned that survey vessels uh, and survey teams were kind of communicating together. I guess they continued to improve how they communicated, even at times co-locating before a storm so that people knew, you know, exactly who to talk to and they could actually walk to their their area and, and communicate quickly before the storm hit so that the uh, you know the the vessels and the channels could get open quicker and after covid in 2020 those lessons about co-locating had to be sort of unlearned and a new method needed to come out because we were suddenly restricted from being close to each other. That was the last thing we wanted to do. Um, so it was really fascinating to sort of dissect that and to see how willing and able people were to adapt um, as we've continued to see these major stressors hit our system. Yeah. Well, glad to hear though that they always learn from their lessons and one of my takeaways, and thank you for the reminder of what the report was really more about. And I think one of my takeaways was a sense of pride at how hard these agencies worked to ensure that they had been communicating with each other and with the local communities in advance, um, such that um, the whether it's community-centric folks or industry-centric industry folks um, we're all talking on the same page and at least they knew where their federal uh, partners were going to be and how things were going to be done and how they would communicate. So um, I, I appreciate the work that you did. So thank you for all of that. Um, I'd like to get back to the report you mentioned, which is the Marine Transportation System Resilience Assessment Guide. It was just published this past June or, or renewed this past June. Um, could you go back to that and explain... Um, what that really seeks to do and how you that uh, guide came about? Sure, um, no problem. So this guide was co-developed by the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, who is the lead and sort of the funding uh, group for this work. And then um, ERDIC, the Engineer Research and Development Center, which is the laboratory I work for. What ended up happening was we connected via the Committee on the Marine Transportation System. Um, I co-lead a team there uh, focused on resilience. Helen is our, was the retired, well, she is the retired lead of that group. Um, so that was, that was sort of like a really great connection um, because CISA has decade, almost a decade of experience conducting regional resilience assessments where they have protective security advisors in the field. And these folks help their stakeholders connect with federal funding and um, technical resources for tackling resilience related problems. So almost every year they have a handful of RRAPs, they're called, that are funded. And there was a good chunk of those that was that were related to marine transportation system, including inland waterways. Um, so they had all of this background and experience conducting those RRAPs and developing 
um, frameworks, like they have their infrastructure resilience planning framework um, for just resilience assessments. And then ERDIC, the Engineer Research and Development Center, has a lot of technical um, experience kind of measuring and understanding and quantifying how we move goods and people across all of our federal channels. So it ended up being a really good match between agencies. And there was a need to develop this guide because, as I said before, there had been a lot of conversation about what resilience means. And there is a lot of resources that are available, data sets, online tools and portals that help people with resilience-related questions. However, even for me, as a person who studies resilience, I would have a really hard time figuring out where to start with all of the these resources out there. So we wanted to gather those resources and organize them in an intuitive and easily accessible way, and then also create sort of a common understanding and a common lexicon for what resilience means for the marine transportation system, which, as we've already discussed, is very complicated. Um, and, you know, often we get debates on on what resilience means in the first place. So this, this was really an attempt to wrap our arms around that, um, to define what a good resilience assessment objective looks like, uh, and then to connect people with useful tools. Who would uh, use this guide and how would they begin to use it? So the guide is useful for a whole variety of potential stakeholders. Um, that includes, you know, folks who um, just have a stake in in the MTS or are concerned about a particular part of the marine transportation system. Um, it could be like a federal agency like the Coast Guard or the Army Corps District, people who are working on a tabletop exercise and want to include resilience as a part of that, or folks that are planning for future infrastructure investments um, based on risks of, of failure in the future. Um, it could be like a planning or engineering department at a port who are developing maybe a strategic plan, um, or it could be contractors that are hired by a port who are doing the strategic plan for them, um, or even just like a, a private terminal operator or some other corporate entity that's evaluating risks and mitigations. Um, we're also trying to expand this guide now in the future to also include communities that are located close by ports um, who, and who might have a stake in any adaptation measures that ports make to increase their resilience because it could potentially affect the community as well, whether negatively or positively. So if a port um, wanted to determine, you know, what resilience meant to them, are we just going to invest more in, in concrete or are we going to change our policies or practices or um, something, they would take this guide and what's kind of one of the first things that they would do? Well, I mean, the first thing they would do is 
read through the resilience primer on what we mean by this, what you could accomplish with a resilience assessment, um, and then, you know, what the sorts of key resilience objectives need to be included, um, just to make sure that this is exactly what they want. Um, and then the guide then outlines like a process for how you would conduct a resilience assessment. And it focuses really heavily on what you do before you even get started in terms of identifying who your champion is going to be and who the decision makers are, what governance is going to impact your ability to make change and the different types of interests that you care about. And then working together with those people and stakeholders to define the issue. I mean, scoping is the most important part of any sort of assessment, especially a resilience one, um, because we really, really are focusing here on your system and the critical dependencies that exist within your system, because you really want to uh, unearth things that you might not have expected um, and impacts you might not have expected before doing an assessment. Well, how, but uh, I'm assuming that ports or areas would have regional plans, strategies, um, port plans all by themselves, or, you know, like, you know, regional planning organizations probably have some plans for the area. How does this guide fit into those? So this guide ideally supplements those plans. Uh, we don't want to create anything. Uh, it's not like it, this lives alone. Um, what we're really aiming for here is if a plan desires to improve a system's resilience to a stressor or a disruption in the future, a resilience assessment is going to help them come up with viable alternatives and justifications for why they would invest in X over Z um, or something like that. So, so this resilience assessment, the idea is that we come up with alternatives in the end um, that are going to best help those plans and existing strategies. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, you had mentioned um, scoping and that that right, right, right there sounds like it could be so big it can get discouraged with it. But are there some objectives under that, under the assessment that you kind of look to that are foundation for kind of these resilience assessments? Oh, good question. Yeah, so one thing that we found, uh, the scoping and process itself was massive, as I've said multiple times in this interview, I think. Um, but for the marine transportation system, you know, it includes a single port, an inland waterway, networks of ports. There's all sorts of questions that could be asked within that. And we reviewed all of the RRAPs that have been done in the past that relate to resilience, and then a lot of resilience-related studies done across the MTS and other infrastructure and transportation systems. And what we ended up doing was seeing that across all of these studies, no matter the question um, or the scope, there were some solid uh, objectives that emerged for each one. Uh, these studies focused on uh, accomplishing, or, or, or in some way, each of these studies addressed four key objectives, we're calling them within this study. The first is defining your function that you care about and characterizing your system 
during a steady state based on that function. So say it's moving goods. Well, what within the system supports your ability to move things from point A to point B? Um, and then let's talk about all the systems that support that and identify them. Next is to analyze of all of these systems, what is what are we defining as critical infrastructure? And what are the dependencies between those critical infrastructure systems? The third key objective is to understand the impacts on this system uh, from disruptive events. And this could be, like we've already discussed, a whole variety of things, uh, kind of depending on what the objective of the assessment is and what the stakeholder group cares about. And then finally, identifying and evaluating some alternatives that can help you increase your resilience to these events. So those are the four key assessment objectives. And we are saying that they are the foundation for doing a resilience assessment anywhere. Doesn't really even have to be ports. Um, I was talking to a friend who's involved in like ecological resilience and nature-based features. And using those four objectives was also really helpful for them to, to sort of solidly define what resilience would look like or how to characterize resilience within an ecological uh, area as well. Well, um, uh, somebody um, once said that there's not, no, not enough concrete in the world to handle um, sea level rise. Um, there's probably not enough money out there um, to, you know, build a wall. <laughs> Um, or a bubble around us, right? So um, uh, understanding what you really, really, really need and what you really, really can't live without um, is sounds like the right first step, but it from it doesn't sound simple, even having said that, given the fact that everybody has different priorities. So um, in your experience, and I know from your work with the Army Corps of Engineers, you've done a lot of work with academia and obviously international organizations and coastal engineering companies and laboratories to try to understand how best to pull these together. Do you think that, um, and I, I, I'm not looking for like a, an, an authoritative opinion, but um, clearly coastal communities, like you said, it's not just for maritime transportation, coastal communities are being impacted. Um, do you think that the understanding, broadly speaking, of authorities understand how to engage in these kind of conversations to begin that scoping? And I truly, truly don't mean this as a loaded question. I'm just going on, you know, the long-time experience you have in working with these and talking to so many people. Um, I guess the question is, since you started this kind of work to now, are you finding that the conversations are less complicated because people understand the nature of this better? Yeah. So we started talking about resilience and investigating resilience back in 2014 when I joined the Corps. And it had been going on for, I don't know, probably five years before that, really since Hurricane Sandy, I, I believe. Um, which was when people really started talking about resilient systems and what is what does that mean? Um, and it began with a debate on definitions. And then the, de the debate on definition moved to a debate about, well, how do we 
quantify that. Um, we figured out how to qualify it a little bit, but, but how can we measure it? And there is a lot of concern, especially with the marine transportation system, about whether people, whether it was appropriate to measure it in the first place, because what does it mean if your resilience is high? Does that mean that you have a better competitive edge? Or does that mean that you don't need help um, or federal funding because you're good to go? Or if your resilience is low, is that going to hurt your competition? Um, and at the same time, maybe qualify you for more investment and funding. So. Those sorts of questions, I would say, um, really deterred us at first from pursuing metrics for quantifying resilience. Um, and instead, we kind of turned and focused on case studies, ways to identify how resilience helps people do their jobs and live their lives better and more safely. Um, so that sort of pivot and understanding using case studies to help people understand what resilience means and how it could potentially impact them um, really has helped our case uh, with advocating for resilience. I think in general, the understanding of resilience and how to assess it is convalescing around those resilience objectives that I mentioned earlier. I went to a meeting at the National Academies about a year ago, maybe a year and a half, and we heard a lot of presentations from different um, state department of transportation about how they're accounting for resilience in their um, state freight plans and future plans. And a lot of their methods seem to be the same. Um, they had different data sets and different questions, but they approached resilience similarly. So um, I would say that as we're getting a much better understanding of resilience for a lot of systems. Um, but of course, there's still uncertainty uh, in how to approach resilience concepts for for other areas. And there's always more work that we can be doing in the future to fund case studies and to demonstrate how these concepts work in, in real life. Thank you. Um, the Great Lakes, like every system, not just maritime system, but every system, waterway system, has mom and pop businesses and large businesses and small communities, large communities. Can the small business folks benefit from a guide like this or to understand? A reason I'm asking is I, I always think that, you know, the small folks don't have the resources to gather folks together to be the organizers of, you know, community conversations necessarily or have the skills or the resources to hire the skills. And um, so, you know, how, I guess, um, if one had the thought that they wanted to begin thinking about their resilience, short of hiring a coastal engineer, right? Engineering to, to advise them on, oh, you need to fix this wall or that. And I'm thinking more broadly and understanding their area and how they fit within it. Um, are there some things, how can this guide help them? Just like, it's not about the scoping. It's even before you get to scoping. And I think I'm thinking about how do you help them understand who they need to talk to? I mean, how do you begin understanding who all the players are? 
And does this guide help you with understanding all the players um, that would be involved in these kind of conversations? So I think I'm going to answer your question in two ways. The first is specifics on, you know, say there is somebody in the Chicago area who uh, is worried about coastal erosion and coastal flooding impacting their property, um, who to contact. In that case, the guide really isn't going to help them um, because as anyone can imagine, it's that level of detail is sort of impossible to get to um, and still produce a guide that's relevant at the national level. So no, no specifics on who to call. However, what we have tried to do with this guide is to make it clear that a resilience assessment doesn't have to um, include a team of eight scientists and engineers and result in like a Bayesian network that, uh, you know, can quantify re- your resilience for you based on your tweaking. It can do that. And we have a case study at the Port of Portland where we did that. However, it can also just be a conversation amongst people within your community um, who care about resilience and who can help each other um, become more resilient. So we kind of have divided the levels of effort for these assessments from um, just like a tabletop exercise, identifying the state of your resilience now and identify and some options for you to improve it all the way up to like a very detailed assessment. And within our resource list, we have got resources that could be useful for a mom and pop shop. Um, for example, there's like a sea level rise viewer that they can, um, you know, check out or, you know, water level rise viewer that they can check out their projections within their area. Or there's like a resilience assessment, um, checklist that you can access uh, in in some of the existing guides that are out there from other agencies. So things like that are available and useful for um, folks who may not have access to do a big study. Thank you. That's that's really great. Um, and y- your point about just doing a tabletop, we, we say tabletop exercise, it sounds kind of like like high level kind of a thing. It is really about sitting around and going through scenarios and just talking to the people you work with immediately or one step or two steps removed or uh, community uh, first responders, just bringing those folks around could begin that a really probably productive conversation as a tabletop exercise to determine what, you know, who's on first, what's on second. So that's a really great point. Thank you. Catherine, I, 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 time goes so fast when we do these. I hate it. Um, so running out of time, but um, could you help everybody understand where, or how, direct everybody to this uh, assessment guide? How do they find it? Sure. So you can find it. It's been, it's been published by the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, um, and it's available on their website. If you just Google Marine Transportation System Resilience Assessment Guide, um, you should be able to find it there. Uh, and I mean, Helen, I can share a link if you could publish it with the notes if folks are interested. Absolutely. Put it on our Facebook page. Um, that's great. And um, if uh, there's other things they want to know what you're up to or the lab's up to, um, how would they find you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to connect there. Um, or you can email me. 
Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. You really know your stuff. Um, I really just appreciate you as both a friend, a colleague, um, and definitely an expert in this area. Um, folks, I don't know about you, but um, having worked in federal government, um, uh, obviously I'm you know, I have a great appreciation for the folks I worked with because they're great people, but I'm constantly reminded about the really amazing work that goes on and you don't always hear about it, but this is a great example of people who are really working hard to try to um, address, you know, these ongoing changes, whether they're environmental or man-made um, and, and take care of us all. Um, thank you, Catherine. It was wonderful to have you with us. Well, thank you, Helen. It was quite the privilege to be on your podcast. <laughs> All right, and we we love your we love your um, uh, your sea shanty, by the way. So this wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles: Tales from the Great Lakes. The creation and content for North Coast Chronicles is by me, Helen Burl, and co-produced and engineered by Tyler Buckingham of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. The sea shanty for our podcast was recorded on the violin by my friend and our guest today, Catherine Chambers. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. Join us next time in North Coast Chronicles as we continue our Great Lakes adventure. Until then, be good to one another.